All right, this is the Oregon Poison Center Journal Club for June 20th, uh, 2013. Tomorrow is the first day of summer, and appropriately enough, we will be talking about heat illnesses and things associated with that, uh, rhabdo, which we'll be delving into some detail on some of the drugs that are associated with it. We'll also be talking about something we see a fair bit of and actually do get called on through the Poison Center, which is exertional heat stroke and whether or not there's drug related. We had an incident a few summers ago of football workout uh, that resulted in about half a dozen or more students getting sent into the emergency room with some severe rhabdo. So as a way of introduction, I want to bring up two things. One, just recently from the June 7th of this month, MMWR, there was reported heat related deaths in extreme heat events in four states. And it talks about an event from last June 29th, 2012. There was a storm that rolled through the Midwest, took out all the electricity in a variety of states, and then the next few days, the temperature went up to like 100 degrees and was hot and was humid. And they statistically correlated how many people got sick and died as a result of that heat event. And it was 32 heat-related deaths in Maryland, Ohio, Virginia, West Virginia, which is where the storm occurred in the two weeks following the storms and power outages. Epidemiologically, the median age was older, 65-year-old people. Um, and um, most of them were living alone or had poor access to either other people to help them out or fluids or uh, medical care. Um, as an annual occurrence, there's about 658 heat-related deaths in the United States, so not a huge number, but, you know, it's about... Um, 10 a week, although most of them, of course, happen in the summer. Um, during this heat event in uh, last June, the temperature got as high as 104 degrees with high humidity, um, and uh, the power was out for at least eight days. And as mentioned, the 32 people died. They were typically older, unmarried, and living alone. And then they compared this to other reports that also seem to happen at this time of year. There was a report in Philadelphia between July 6th and 16th in 1993. There was 118 deaths from a heat wave. Uh, there was the famous Chicago heat wave of July 10th through 20th, 1995. There was 514 deaths in Chicago, an enormous amount during that two-week period. And then in Maricopa County in Arizona, there was 28 deaths during a, a, a 2005 heat wave that occurred. So this is something we see, obviously, when the power goes out and people can't get shade and can't get air conditioning and can't get their medications and uh, death occurs. Now, there's another at-risk group, the one I mentioned earlier. This is an article from the American Journal of Preventative Medicine, for, also from 2013, uh, called The Epidemiology of Exertional Heat Illness Among U.S. High School Athletes. Um, it's mostly an epidemiologic article that talk about exertional heat illness being the spectrum of heat cramps to where you get some pain in your muscle, to heat syncope where you pass out, mostly from dehydration, to heat exhaustion where you sort of pass out or remain uptunded, to exertional heat stroke, the most severe form, of course death is a more severe form, where you have altered mental status and hyperthermia both. And, of course, the length of time and damage to the cells that are hyperthermic is critically important. They think the threshold's about 30 to 60 minutes for cellular damage, which seems a bit short. Anyway, the way this study was done is they had a database by high school athletic trainers. And they were supposed to enter in every event that occurred, every injury, and what was the cause, and which sports were involved. Um, they 
10,000 entries in this database annually. It's, it's a passive reporting database, much like our database is. Depends who signs up. And uh, they noted previous to this, between 1995 and 2010, a 15-year period, there was 35 high school football players that had died from exertional heat stroke. Um, and um, usually due to practice techniques that were common where they weren't allowing people to rehydrate and they were working out despite high temperatures. And so they looked at which schools, which sports and which times a year and which BMIs were most at risk. And I don't think there's any surprises here. So if anyone was to guess which sport was the number one sport associated with exertional heat stroke in boys, that would be football. football. Clearly number one, um, five events per 100,000 um, um, athletes working at that time. In girls, any idea which one girls' highest event would be? Soccer. Yes, girls' soccer uh, with volleyball, number two. And uh, the, low, uh, the states that were highly affected were, again, no surprise, Florida, Alabama, Arizona, and then Kentucky for, I don't know, a little bit northern, probably the humidity. As far as which positions they played, it was offensive, defensive linemen, and linebackers. And then the sport with the least amount of heat exertional stresses, don't overthink this too much. Swimming? Um, no, 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 it's ice hockey. So those of you following the Stanley Cup, don't expect anybody to fall over in triple overtime from heat exhaustion. All right, so that's pretty much where where we stand, and you know, basically saying that there should be time out for rest and rehydration, and coaches and, and trainers should be aware of the signs and symptoms. Which I think the better trainers are maybe uh, you know aware of, and maybe this is not something that happens across the board. So we'd like to talk a little bit about a related event, which is what constitutes. Heat-induced exertional rhabdomyolysis. We've got a couple of papers with that. So first up, we talk about um, a paper from where it travels some interesting places. This one's from Fort Benning, Georgia, someplace you definitely don't want to spend your summer. This um, is our, <laughs> our emergency medicine resident, George. So this first paper is entitled Serum Creatine Kinase After Exercise, Drawing the Line Between Physi Physiological Response and Exertional rhabdomyolysis. Uh, the lead author is Kimbra Kenny, MD. She's from the Department of Neurology and the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences from Bethesda, Maryland. Um, and this study came from uh, Muscle and Nerve in March of 2012. And the goal of this study was to determine baseline serum CK levels in soldiers that were new recruits into the Army and they basically um, followed their serum CK levels during the first two weeks of basic military training, which is when most episodes of exertional rhabdomyolysis are thought to occur. So this was a prospective observational study. They had 499 healthy volunteers that were all from Fort Benning, Georgia. None of them had uh, begun their physical training yet. They were all between 18 and 45 years old. They were all male. Um, and all these patients basically uh, provided informed consent, and they had um, questionnaires that were administered at day zero, as well as serological evaluations. And the questionnaire basically involved um, clinical information about their degree of soreness on a scale of zero to three and pain, 
was rated from 0 to 10 related to their training. And then they were asked whether or not they had tea-colored urine. Um, they also had to document all their physical activity during this time, and they had strength testing from 0 to 5 um, in all their major muscle groups. And of course, serum CK levels were measured. And they did this on day 0, 3, 7, and 14. And they defined exertional rhabdo for this study as the presence of muscle weakness or edema and elevated serum CK and elevated serum uh, myoglobin. So the results of this study, they actually separated the two groups into two different uh, climate groupings. So they had one during the summer months in which the uh, average daytime temperature was 90.7 degrees Fahrenheit and one in the cooler months during which the average temperature was about 66. And the group was roughly split in half between these two times of basic training. Um, just moving on here. So with respect to the results of the study, uh, baseline CK measurements for most of the patients was within the normal uh, range. The mean was 223. At day three, that rose to 734. By day seven, the mean and median was 1,226 and 567, respectively. And by day 14, those values came down uh, back to 667 for a mean. So a couple interesting findings. They found that patients with no prior physical fitness, defined as less than two episodes of basically working out in a week prior to leading up to this, um, correlated with increased CK levels in those trainees, but these were not statistically significant findings. Um, they also found, um, as we stated, that serum CK levels were pretty nearly universally elevated during the training blood draws, and as we said, that peaked around the day seven draw, but they almost all came back down. Um, by day seven, um, about a quarter of the subjects had CK levels that were greater than five times the upper limit of normal, and just over 10% had levels that were over 10 times the upper limit of normal. Um, also, they found that African-American recruits tended to have uh, a statistically higher CK value compared to um, the other races that were involved in the study. Um, their mean baseline CK was 664 and a median of 371 and higher levels throughout all the training. Um, There's also statistically significant changes between the hot climate and cool climate groups. So the hot climate actually had um, lower CK levels, which was surprising to me. And this was statistically significant. Um, for example, on day seven, about a thousand in the hot climate group and 1,300 in the cool climate group. And another interesting finding in this study was that they found no cases of clinical exertional rhabdo as defined by uh, what I said earlier, muscle weakness elevated serum CK and myoglobinemia or, and or myoglobinuria uh, throughout the 499 patients, which is unusual because in one of the studies we'll see later, they found an incidence of like 2 to 40% uh, this kind of cohort. 
and we'll get to that later. They did send four patients to the ER. Two had manifested some mild weakness and two reported dark urine, but their um, subsequent evaluations were normal. Um, there was also uh, slight differences in the amount of physical activity that was done between the cool climate and warm climate groups, but um, well, we could talk about that a little later in the discussion. So basically, um, they concluded that CK levels of greater than 10 times the upper limit of normal were not uncommon in this cohort that they were evaluating, and they suggested that um, a more recently proposed guideline of a CK of greater than 50 times the upper limit of normal, and this would correspond to a CK level of greater than 12,000, uh, may be more appropriate for diagnosis. They cite that this cutoff would have only falsely identified four of their patients um, by serological evaluation rather than um, 57 uh, if, if they went with the prior cutoff recommendations. Um, and they just went on to talk about how distinguishing between physiological ER and clinically significant ER is difficult. And I think that's it. I guess I'll just open it up to commentary at this point. Yeah, I, I kind of threw this one in because they were sort of, they talk about looking at outliers, but in a way they are almost like the outlier definition. In order to, for them to consider you to have clinical rhabdo or clinically important rhabdo, you had to like hurdle over, have myoglobin in your urine, and it didn't really matter how high your CK is. And I think most people probably don't honestly believe that really defines rhabdo. I mean, rhabdo in and of itself is the breaking up of the muscles and sort of the generally off-repeated numbers, like five times the upper limit of normal. So for them to have people who get CKs in the 30,000 range and for them to just have them drink some water, I think the important part is most of these people are young, they're healthy, and they get better. Unfortunately, the article they cite for the 50 times the upper limit of normal was not an exertional rhabdo, it was in statin myopathy, which is a completely different pathophysiology so that they jumped over for. So I think that's the sort of the downside of this article, is they were trying to prove that you can kind of like send recruits and make them work to death in hot or cold weather. It doesn't matter what your CK is, as long as you're able to drink and keep hydrated, so you don't go into renal failure, your urine doesn't turn as dark as Coca-Cola, you're probably going to be okay which that's probably not the normal. The other interesting thing I think I, only, I want to point out is I do give them credit for this is they, they found it was in colder weather, you actually had higher levels and they postulate that people work harder when they're not like sweating and feeling exhausted. So if the air temperature is not too bad outside, you're more likely to do more push-ups and sit-ups and run further and do all these exercises, which is just going to lead to increase muscle breaking up. Yeah, and they thought that the awareness of... Uh, exertional rhabdos increased during the summer months and that could have contributed to the less working out in the summer and possibly more hydration. Yeah, I think the military, like the sports uh, in high school and college, uh, became aware as there were people dying in these, uh, you know, pushing themselves to the limit hot weather days and really do try to um, rehydrate as much as possible. But I don't know how much they let people out just because they say they're their soreness score on a scale of one to three is a two. I don't think that gets you out of doing anything in Fort Bending, Georgia. Uh, you just got to keep running with a 30-pound pack on your back, and uh, you know that's the way it is. Yeah. So the other question that comes up is, um, 
Okay, let's say you have one of these people have exertional rhabdomyolysis, you know, kind of like the athlete with concussion is when can you let the athlete with rhabdo, however you want to define it, go back and like do his exercise routine again. And it becomes critically important, not just for the military, but also in these sports who want to train and be ready for that first big football game on, you know, Labor Day weekend. So talk a little bit about this. Um, there's another article out of uh, the military, uh, Uniform Health Science is our visiting uh, resident from UCLA, Holly. So the article we're talking about here, the title of it is um, Return to Physical Activity After Exertional Rhabdomyolysis. Um, this was published in Current Sports Medicine Reports uh, by the American College of Sports Medicine in 2008. Um, and the uh, lead author on this is um, Francis G. O'Connor. Um, so they talk, they start out the uh, paper with two little case vignettes. Um, one of them is a 25-year-old otherwise healthy male um, who has a uh, weightlifting competition with one of his friends in high school and then presents to the ER um, with a CK level of 25,000 and is admitted for three days, gets some fluid hydration and goes home just fine. And then the other one is a 21-year-old African-American college football player who has sickle cell trait and starts his summer football camp and then presents to the ER. He has a CK level of 50,000 and requires an eight-day hospital stay um, uh, before he is discharged with, uh, with a uh, normal CK level again. And this paper asks, uh, after these patients are seen, when can they be cleared to go back to work and what or go back to exercising and working out? And what are their kind of risks for recurrence? Um, so they define... Um, a couple of risk factors for developing exertional rhabdo, um, which they say is like prolonged, repeated exercises. Um, also having a low baseline fitness level at the beginning. Um, so, if, you know, if you're starting to work out and you haven't worked out in a long time, you're at higher risk of getting exertional rhabdo. Um, also having a higher initial BMI, um, having a concurrent um, viral illness, having um, some other conditions like sickle cell, sickle cell trait, or um, ingesting anabolic steroids, amphetamines, high, high amounts of stimulants like caffeine, or um, a frequent alcohol abuser. Um, so, and then they define uh, exertional rhabdo here as severe muscle pain, um, plus or minus, so, you know, and or um, cola urine, uh, with a CK five times normal, so in comparison to our previous study, they only say five times normal, or... Um, myoglobinuria. Um, and they do say that there is something called benign exertional rhabdo, which is an elevation of a CK with no clinical signs or symptoms whatsoever, but um, beyond what's expected, but they don't go into that um, in much detail. So they talk um, about recommendations. So the three questions they want to ask is if the patient can go back to physical activity is one, are they at risk for recurrent rhabdo? So if they go back to workout, how likely are they going to be to come back um, to the ER with a recurrent rhabdomyolysis? Um, and two, what, what time period are they safely able to return? Um, and then three, if they do return, what kind of restrictions do they need to have? And they uh, reference a um, table uh, that of characteristics that make people suspicious um, for high, uh, that are, are high risk for recurrence um, of the rhabdo. And the things that they list is that patients must have 
at least one of these traits. Um, so like a delay into recovery, so uh, a patient that takes more than one week for their CK levels to go down, um, which goes also a persistent CK level greater than five times the upper limit of normal. Um, exertional rhabdo complicated by acute renal failure um, of any degree. Personal or family history of exertional rhabdo. Um, personal or family history of recurrent muscle cramps or severe muscle pain that interferes with activities of daily living or sports performances. Personal or family history of malignant hyperthermia or family history of explained complications or death following general anesthesia. Um, a family or personal history of sickle cell disease or sickle cell trait. Um, if their mechanism of uh, injury, so if they had a very low intensity workout and then developed rhabdo, it's also higher, in, higher risk. Um, they have a personal history of heat stroke or their peak um, serum CK levels are greater than 100,000. So um, then they, they also have the low risk, which is a lot of, you know, basically anyone who doesn't have any of these features and recovers very quickly and their CK normalizes, those are considered the low risk patients. Um, I won't go through all of those points because they're kind of the negative of what we just talked about. So um, in our, the clinical vignettes, um, our case two, so the um, college football player with the sickle cell trait who had a peak level of greater than 100,000, he's at very high um, risk for reoccurrence and should be like evaluated more appropriately. And they actually re recommend that this patient, probably before um, return to activity, needs to have a kind of a full workup um, uh, before they're allowed to go. Um, back. If you're one of the, um, like our first patient here, they don't require a more extensive workup and are most likely going to be able um, to go back without complications. They also suggest this um, phased level of integration, a return to play guidelines for the low-risk athlete. So if you are a low-risk athlete like clinical vignette one, um, you want to rest them for 72 hours and encourage oral rehydration. They want them to sleep eight hours a night and then, you know, not go out in heat, stay kind of therm in a thermally controlled environment, and then they follow up their CK in 72 hours and repeat UA. If the CK levels then are um, normalized or less than five times the level of normal, um, then they can begin the phase two, which is like they begin with light activities, no things super strenuous, they go at their own pace, um, and then they follow up with a care provider in one week. If there's no return to their previous symptoms, they don't have an increased elevated CK or significant muscle soreness, weakness, swelling, pain, um, then they are able to go gradually return to their normal activities. Um, and if they have any of the recurrent symptoms, then they need to be referred for a more complete workup. And their complete workup there, they were um, advising for these high-risk patients with muscle biopsy, um, EMG, um, and a couple other things looking for um, any sort of myopathic or muscular diseases. Yeah, so basically you know, the main author of this article was in charge of this working group for the military to come up with not so much a data-driven, research-driven answer, but like what's a common sense answer. So, I mean, they feel even with these mild cases, you should rest for a couple of days, three days, get rehydrated, stay cool, get some sleep, and then go back to work. Obviously, this report came out in 2008, and the people who just uh, did the study that uh, George has talked about it was a few years later. So they hadn't obviously adhered to that uh, <laughs> policy. They just kind of worked everybody. 
But, I mean, it makes kind of sense. They, they talk about some of the risks of, you know, just looking at, for lack of a better term, CPK or CKEMIA. I mean, it's pretty substantial. They talk about, you know, one group of Marine recruits being anywhere from 0.3% to 3% in Army officer candidates, to up to 57% in ultramarathoners demonstrating myoglobinemia. And, you know, even with basic training, it can occur up to 40%, depending on who you read. Um, so, and, and then there's a, finally among New York City firefighters, uh, about 2% get hospitalized each year for, uh, after their physical fitness test, which I imagine involves like carrying hoses up like eight levels of stairs in the heat and things like that. So, um, you know, this is out there and I think, again, raises the awareness, but I think creates some guidelines as far as when maybe it'd be appropriate to go back to physical activity and exorbitant exercise. And again, something that I don't think gets followed very often, unfortunately. So to change gears a little bit, what about non-exertional rhabdo? And you know, where, how high does the CK have to be when you have multifactorial rhabdo before you really do develop uh, acute kidney injury? So Shana is gonna tell us about this, this observational ICU study that addresses that issue. Yeah, so I am presenting the paper called An Observational Study on Rhabdomyolysis in the Intensive Care Unit, Exploring Its Risk Factors and Main Complication in Acute Kidney Injury. Uh, this paper was done out of Antwerp University Hospital in Belgium, where interestingly they routinely check myoglobins and CKs on all their patients when they get admitted to the ICU, which kind of allowed them to do this study. So um, what they wanted to look at was if there's a way to predict the development of acute kidney injury in the setting of rhabdo, and if this is something that you can do using CK or serum myoglobin or urine myoglobin or both or neither, um, and also if there's any sort of predictive value of different levels, and if there are risk factors you can identify that would predispose an ICU patient to develop rhabdo and acute kidney injury. So um, just in terms of their markers, the CK versus myoglobin, um, you know, rhabdomyolysis, of course, results in a myoglobinemia that is, the myoglobin itself is what is believed to cause the um, renal toxicity. Um, however, you know, as they point out, interestingly, people actually tend to follow CK as the marker. Um, the half-life of CK is 1.5 days, whereas myoglobin has a much quicker peak, a much shorter half-life, two to three hours, and it um, is also cleared outside of the kidney. So it sort of has some different appealing reasons to look at it as a marker. Um, so going into this, you know, they wanted to sort of basically do this single center retrospective observational cohort study looking at ICU patients and just looking at their various parameters of CK and myoglobin um, while keeping an eye on risk factors that are known to cause rhabdo. And the ones that they were looking at specifically were hypotension, trauma, electrolyte disturbances, drug abuse, and sepsis. Um, so methods, they basically went through all of their charts of all of their patients um, over a 15-month period, June 2008 to September 2009. They wanted to only identify true rhabdomyolysis, so they excluded any patients who would have elevated CK for other reasons. 
This means that all the acute coronary syndrome patients were excluded, um, CVA patients and bleeding patients were also excluded um, because uh, damaged to cerebral tissue could also cause a rise in plasma CK. Um, they also excluded any patients with uh, chronic dialysis needs because by definition, it's hard to determine what sort of effect rhabdo might have on their renal function. So as far as what they were measuring on these patients, just with respect to labs, um, they do at the center, as I mentioned, take um, baseline measurements on all admitted patients, which is interesting. And as an aside, they never really talked about why this is how it runs at their hospital. But you get a CK, a serum myoglobin, and a urine myoglobin on admission um, just so that they can follow um, muscular injury. All patients apparently get a troponin on admission as well. Um, yeah, and then, of course, the baseline serum creatinine. So, these patients admitted to the ICU, so it's not just like everybody gets admitted right, to the right, hospital. Right, sorry. Mm. Right. But interesting that they do mm. that in their ICU. It's uh, sort of different, um, which they talk about later, which we'll get to. But um, so, you know, one, one caveat to that is, of course, the patient is oliguric or anuric. They're not going to have urine myoglobin levels that are measurable. And as such, any of those patients would just sort of a priori be excluded from this analysis. Then with respect to the various data points, um, they looked for all the labs I just mentioned, the values at admission, the maximum values over the course of the admission. Um, they recorded a bunch of, you know, the typical demographic information and clinical information on all of the patients, you know, like why they were there, what their fundamental medical issue was. Um, they looked at their ICU length of stay. They also looked at their SOFA score, which is one of these, like, you know, illness severity measures the sequential organ failure assessment mode. And um, though they don't talk about this later much, they also recorded everybody's inotropic index, um, which they, I guess is also routinely measured on, on their ICU patients. So then they looked through all these patients for specific risk factors known to be associated with rhabdo. Um, these included crush injury, um, any sort of muscular ischemia, whether that be uh, reperfusion injury, um, hereditary disorders, malignant hyperthermia, inflammatory, inflammatory disorders like dermatomyositis, polymyositis, and prolonged surgery as well. Um, they also looked for medications or illegal drugs, um, specifically the um, statins, fibrates, and diuretics, which are all thought to be associated with rhabdo. Um, additionally, alcohol, cocaine, or amphetamine abuse. So then, then the outcomes. Their outcomes that they measured were um, complications, specifically acute kidney injury, the need for dialysis, or mortality. And they defined acute kidney injury using this rifle criteria, um, which assigns some varying levels of severity of renal dysfunction based on uh, creatinine increases in the ICU. It's apparently been validated in other, other arenas. And then they looked at all of these various data points and divided their patients into four groups. They had patients um, basically up to a normal CK, which was 170, between 170 and 1,000, between 1,000 and 5,000, and then patients greater than 5,000. Um, and they sort of stratified these in that manner and then did all kinds of magical statistical logistic regressions trying to see what values of labs associated with what risk and if you controlled for different risk factors, how it affected things. So what were the results? 
In the end, they had a pretty impressively large cohort of patients, 1,769 eligible patients. Um, they you know, had to eliminate a number for acute coronary syndrome, CBA, and dialysis, and then a number got omitted for missing myoglobin levels of serum in the serum or in the urine. Um, in the end, they had 342 patients, or 20% with CK values greater than 1,000. And any of the patients who had CK values greater than 1,000 um, had higher SOFA scores and a higher number of bad outcomes. Uh, shockingly, uh, if you had more than 5,000 as your CK, that also is associated with a higher rate of bad outcomes, 42%. Um, of those patients required dialysis, and 27% had a or 27% rate of mortality if your CK was greater than 5,000. So then, looking at the various causes, um, they did find significant associations between a CK greater than 5,000 with recent orthopedic surgery, also trauma, a prolonged resuscitation, compartment syndrome, and prolonged surgery, meaning more than six hours. Um, you know. So, a lot of this stuff to me, this is not not brain surgery, quote unquote. These are all kind of obvious things that I'm stating here, mm -hmm. I think. None of this is shocking. Um, then looking at the acute kidney injury, um, again, obvious guy states that patients with rifle criteria levels two or three tended to have higher levels of urine myoglobin, serum myoglobin, and CK. Um, so then getting into the slightly more nuanced, interesting findings, they found that the CK tended to peak later than the serum myoglobin in these patients. Just sort of, I think, this myoglobin thing, we're getting to the end already, but that's sort of what they hang their, their hats on. So um, they redid their analysis. They removed all of the patients who died within 24 hours, and then they removed all of those who died within 48 hours to see if that affected their outcomes in any way, and the answer is that no, it didn't. And then they removed the patients who got out of the ICU within 24 hours and then those who got out within 48 hours, and it also didn't change their findings. So that was just looking at, are they watering down their data by having the sickest patients or the least sick patients included? And the answer to that question was no. So finally, do we have any you know, predictive abilities here? And they have this one figure that shows some um, ROC curves. And basically, they were able to determine some cutoffs that they felt were predictable, or predictable, oops, predictive of acute kidney injury, specifically a CK greater than 773, a serum myoglobin greater than 368, and a urine myoglobin greater than 38. Um, and then they did a final magical statistical data manipulation to see if CK or serum myoglobin was more helpful and more important. And they found that an elevated CK alone without a myoglobin level doesn't necessarily have a statistically significant increased risk of acute kidney injury. But a serum myoglobin of greater than 368 does significantly increase your risk of acute kidney injury regardless of your CK elevation. And if you have an isolated elevated serum myoglobin, your odds ratio of acute kidney injury is 4.3. And if it also has an associated CK elevation, it goes up to 5.1. So that's kind of their big, like, look, we did something important here with this paper, is that, um, you know, they argue that they look at myoglobin at their institution, which is not routinely done at other institutions, which is true. 
and that they feel they could, they demonstrated that you may be able to more reliably or quickly predict the risk of acute kidney injury if you follow serum myoglobin. Um, that's kind of it. I mean, you know, in the discussion rather than in the results, they talk about some of their associations they found as far as risk factors. Again, they're not really surprising. Um, they did find an association with um, ischemia by vascular destruction or by trauma, um, sepsis, heat stroke, or hypothermia, and hyponatremia. Um, recent surgery, surgery over six hours in particular, was a risk factor for developing rhabdo. Um, interestingly, they did not find a significant association between alcohol abuse or drug abuse, um, illicit drug abuse, in, uh, in their cohort, but they had a, apparently a much lower than you would usually expect number of ICU patients with those issues identified, so they thought that there may have been sort of a washout or a selection bias. Um, the only drug that they found to be associated with increased CK was loop diuretic use. Um, what else? That's pretty much it. Um, as far as the limitations, they discussed the fact that most places don't mm -hmm. really check serum myoglobin. Yeah. So even though they were super excited to determine that myoglobin may be an early fast predictor of the development of acute kidney injury, you have to actually check it at your hospital for it to help you out. Um, they claim that the level of more than 1,000 is something of CK is something that should be concerning and causes a more than threefold increase rate of AKI, which is a lower number than has been identified in previous studies. So maybe you should get more concerned when you see a CK of a thousand or greater. Um, I think that's it. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty interesting study in that, you're right, they got these serial daily levels on everybody who came in. Now, granted, none of these patients had really exertional heat stroke. None of these patients really had any sort of toxin-related thing. There was a couple that had alcohol as a cofactor. Most of these were surgical and sepsis. Diseases are completely different etiology for why they had rhabdo. But their thresholds for developing both morbidity and kidney injury were reasonably low compared to what we saw in young, healthy recruits and athletes in that the CK was in the 7-800 range and the myoglobin, which we don't measure but peaks earlier, was only about 3-400 range. So we can actually get myoglobins pretty quickly if we so desired as a bedside quick colorimetric test that can show you how high it is. There's labs that can certainly do it. And it may be something that helps us predict who may be at risk and who needs to be followed serially. But they're sort of at the opposite end of the spectrum, suggesting that even lower levels in these sick patients may be associated. So it's not one single illness that's the same in heat stroke or athletes or drug-induced or trauma, but you got to understand the context in which rhabdo is occurring in order to appreciate what the risk factors for who's going to developed the, the dreaded complication, which is renal failure. And a lot of them went on to dialysis. I forgot what the percentages were, but they were actually pretty high number of dialysis patients who had CKs above 1,000, and even more so those who had CKs above 5,000, the more conservative numbers for uh, definition of rhabdo. So this is TOX, so we can't get away without talking about some drugs. So I'm going to review a paper on the influence of drug use, um, morbidity and mortality, and heat stroke out of the Arizona group. We mentioned one of the big heat waves was Maricopa uh, County, which is around Phoenix. This is Michael Levine, Frank Levecchio, and Ruhan, and a couple other folks who basically, uh, in their introduction, talk about the same thing we've talked about before, traditional heat stroke being the core temperature above 40 degrees with some sort of CNS 
involvements, and of course the complications that you can worry about are rhabdorenal failure and DIC. Um, we talk about all the different risk factors, but they felt that a variety of drugs, and I have a nice little table there of drugs that at least been reported in other studies to produce heat illness, typically fall into a few big categories. There are the atypical antipsychotics, the, the tricyclic antidepressants, there's a whole variety of anticholinergic meds, and therefore the unable to sweat. And then there's the drugs uh, like stimulants, amphetamines, and cocaine, where you get hyperadrenergic and generate more heat. So this was a case-controlled study in two of uh, the academic medical centers in Phoenix uh, between August 2005 and July 2010. They went through their ICD-9 diagnoses and looked for heat illness or heat stroke. Um, and they, you know, they looked for, excluded the ones who were bacteremic or culture positive. Um, they defined drug users, if a drug was found on a list of medications, whether a tox stream is positive for cocaine or amphetamines. And the outcome parameters were really just length of stay and morbidity and mortality. So during this uh, five-year study, they found uh, 574 patients of which 78 met inclusion criteria. Mean age was 49.6, about 50 years old. Um, obviously men outnumbered women as it always is in this thing. Uh, they tell you, for those of you thinking about spending a summer in Maricopa County, the mean daily ambient temperature is 41.7 degrees Celsius. That's that's running a high grade lethal fever, and the mean core body temperature uh, was 40. So people's body temperature was actually cooler than the ambient air in all these situations. There was no association between ambient outdoor temperature and mortality or length of stay. Um, and then 31 or 40 percent of the whole cohort had used one uh, drug of their predefined drug list. And of those, the leading number drug was any thoughts, guesses? Uh, amphetamines, uh, 10 times, followed by antipsychotics, and then benzotropine, cocaine, cyclobenzaprine, diphenhydramine, diuretics, and a positive tricyclic strain. So these are the things that they found in those uh, cohort of uh, 31 patients, so 40%. Uh, they weren't routinely getting drug screens in everybody, so it's sort of a, a, you know, a random sample of who did or who didn't. So they tried to do some controlled uh, multiple comparisons, and the only thing they found that predicted who was going to be hyperthermic was a heart rate or being innovated as being a statistically significant predictor. So, I mean, obviously, if you're innovated, you go into the ICU with a heart rate so nonspecific that I don't think you can use that much for anything except maybe they need more fluids. Of this group, uh, nine died. Um, two of them were non-users, four of them were users of different drugs. A couple of them had uh, cardiac arrest before they actually got to the hospital or additional history could be obtained. And despite what we've just heard about these enormously high CK elevations, um, in and in people who would use the different drugs or combinations, their peak CPK, our maximum CPK was about 2,900, and non-users it was only 420, and the AST went up as well. We've talked before about how when your muscles break up, it's not just CPK and myoglobin that's leaking, but it's AST, it's ALT, and in fact, it's troponin I as well, despite people feeling that troponin I is specific to uh, your myocardium. It actually does go up. We reviewed a paper earlier this week with uh, uh, Bill that it can go up quite substantially to things that look like an acute MI, but unless you're having EKG changes or chest pain, it's hard to call that an acute ischemic event.
So they basically said nearly half the patients in their study had uh, used drugs known to alter thermal regulation. Their hospital stay was three times longer than those who did not have any sort of drug use, uh, but there wasn't an increased mortality per se with them, and they just kind of review all the different things as far as what drugs cause issues, sympathomimetics, increased heat generation, uh, anticholinergics, decreased heat dissipation, predisposed to hypothermia, and they um, basically didn't check for other things. The limitations are... Um, it was a retrospective study, and it was an elective what was labs were obtained and what items were put into a medical record. So they just had to look through charts and look for these items, whether they're mentioned drug use or not. Uh, so that's pretty much it for that. And I don't think it, it opens up anything that we didn't know, except that you should be aware that patients on anticholinergics have with lots and lots of drugs that have anticholinergic side effects have decreased ability to sweat, and with decreased ability to sweat, if you're living in an environment where it's 40 to 41 degrees outside Celsius, um, <laughs> then you're at risk for um, having a hyperthermic illness. Now, Mike Levine's group also came up with yet another risk factor, and uh, Bill's going to tell us about that. That's sort of a 2013 thing. Which is pretty interesting. So we're going to change gears here, and I'm actually going to discuss a case series, um, as Zane mentioned, uh, lead author being Michael Levine. Uh, I was in the Annals of Emergency Medicine this year, so April 2013. Uh, title of it being Compartment Syndrome after Bath Salts Use, a case series. And so this case series is actually three, three separate case reports of confirmed bath salt use and compartment syndrome. As we know, kind of these synthetic cathinones are being used much more frequently um, as a you know great sympathomimetic activity, and basically are just like amphetamines, but do not show up on a lot of our drug screens. Um, so the first case report is actually an 18-year-old healthy male, um, actually found agitated, running outside his house naked, had um, a normal glucose on scene, was given benzodiazepines, IM for agitation, presented to the ED tachycardic. Uh, heart rate of 160, hyperthermic, so pretty high temperature, rectal temperature of 42.1 degrees Celsius, which is about 107 degrees Fahrenheit, so very high. Um, due to increasing, you know, agitation received, and multiple doses of benzos, looks like in the emergency department, labs, pertinent labs that were obtained, he was acidotic with a bicarb of 16 and a pH of 7.18, uh, did have a free acute kidney injury, um, creatinine of 2.1. Again, remember this is a healthy 18-year-old, so it's definitely not his baseline renal function. Elevated LFTs, um, which you see with Rabbo Zane mentioned, of AL, AFT of 43 and an ALT of 165, and then his initial CK was 64,578. Uh, so pretty, pretty significant Rabdo, and especially having some renal dysfunction, and that could be a combination of the Rabdo uh, and dehydration. It's um, unlikely that this patient was well hydrated. As many of these patients often do, you know, he continue to have pretty significant agitation and kind of hyperactivity, uh, muscle use. Was admitted to the ICU, started on bicarb, was rhabdo, fluids, uh, and a fentanyl and propofol drip. Actually also required phenobarbital uh, initially in the ICU with pretty significant agitation. Uh, repeat CK there was elevated to 80,900-ish. Um, the current part of this is 12 hours after his ICU course, he actually self-activated and was complaining of significant right forearm pain. Um, sounds like they basically resedated and reintubated him 
um, repeated at CKU, which was significantly elevated from prior at 201,000. And they measured compartment pressures in this right forearm as they, they noticed that it was very firm and tense, and it was, oh, compartment pressure was 58. It was actually taken in the OR for a fasciotomy uh, with the orthopedic surgeons, didn't notice that he had um, still viable muscle tissue, but it was under tension. So definitely had, you know, clinically significant um, compartment syndrome, so it's lucky that they caught it early. The interesting thing with this case is he remained intubated in the ICU, and when they're examining his left forearm, after his first operation, they noticed that that was starting to become tense and firm. And they actually did a left forearm fasciotomy to his compartments, where they also noticed, you know, viable mus muscle that was under tension. Um, so ultimately, you know, this patient was extubated. He admitted to injecting bath salts into his left arm, so not his right arm, which was the, you know, where, where he initially had compartment syndrome. Um, and so this was kind of confirmed bath salt use, and he actually developed bilateral forearm compartment syndrome. Uh, which is pretty amazing. So compartment syndrome has been shown with amphetamines, but it's a rare association and it's rarely been reported. And there's only a few case reports with amphetamine use, like methamphetamine and compartment syndrome. So with that being the topic, there's two more case reports that I'm going to go over as well. And the next one, uh, the 37-year-old male, not as healthy as our 18-year-old. He had a history of a retinopherectomy due to trauma in the past um, and had ingested an unknown quantity of bath salts four hours before arriving to the hospital. He also was tachycardic in the 150s and hypothermic at 39 degrees Celsius. His labs were pretty similar to the previous patient. Um, he was slightly acidotic, uh, with a ICAR of 18, uh, and his renal function was pretty, pretty elevated. His VU on 49, his cranium was 6.2. And you got to remember this gentleman had a right nephrectomy, so he only had his left kidney. Um, his ASD LTs were also elevated, and his initial CKA presentation was elevated to 90,168. Um, so almost the exact same. They also had an elevated troponin I, as we were yeah. just talking about, to 11. Yeah, I should have mentioned that too. They did view a troponin I, and it's gentleman was 10.9, as Ian mentioned. We did notice the association between rapamyelitis and an elevated troponin I. And I'm assuming this guy did not complain of any cardiac symptoms, but that was not mentioned in this case series. Um, and almost the exact same course as the other gentleman, 12 hours, so then some 12 hours after his uh, admission to the ICU. Um, they repeated a CK and it was significantly elevated, 350,000. Um, and so his initial was 90,000. That's almost, you know, four, four-fold increase in a CK. Renal function was actually a little improved with a cranium of 5.1. Um, and he was, you know, received 8.5 liters of IV fluids um, and had minimal uh, urine output, 345 mils. So he had the kind of acute renal failure. And he was dialyzed. Um, now, interesting with him... A few days later, um, he started complaining of pretty severe fat pain in the his lumbar spine and noticed that his paraspinal muscles were tense and firm. He also went for a fasciotomy of his paraspinal muscles, so the muscles of his back, and they actually noted necrotic muscle um, with their OR findings. So he actually had kind of the later stages of his compartment syndrome. But it's interesting just because you rarely hear of paraspinal muscle compartment syndrome, um, and obviously he developed it likely due to, you know, overuse of his muscles with his bath salt use. Um, and with that being said, moving on to case number three, this is also another case report of paraspinal muscle compartment syndrome with bath salt use, which is, I think, very interesting. And so this patient was a 43-year-old male, um, polysubstance abuse in the past, but had admitted, you know, snorting two vials of bath salts. 
presentation somewhat similar to the other gentleman, except he was not hyperthermic. So this gentleman was tachycardic at 145, but he was not hyperthermic during his hospital course. Same as before, a little bit of renal dysfunction, elevated CK at 27,000. Um, he presented a little later, so he was, unlike the other gentleman, at 12, to 8, you know, 12 hours after their admission, he was on hospital day two. So at that point, his vital signs, you know, he was treated for his rhabdo, his vital signs that, you know, returned to normal, his mental status normalized. So then at that point, he started also complaining of pretty severe lower back pain, and was also noted to have firm tense for his spinal muscles. Um, the difference between this gentleman and the other two cases is he was not taken the OR, so he still managed medically with observation and did well, but... Um, it's just interesting that he, he likely probably had some element of compartment syndrome um, or was close to developing as severe as compartment syndrome as the gentleman that's case report number two. Um, but he was managed medically and did just fine. Um, so this is obviously three three cases. I'm sure there's more out there and there's probably more to come as bath salts are becoming increasingly used. Um, important part of you know realizing this is just understanding that you know compartment syndrome can be a late finding these gentlemen and is likely due to that severe rhabdo that they had. All these, all these patients had you know, CKs about 100,000. Um, and with that muscle damage, you get edema, you get swelling uh, in small compartments such as the forearms. Um, and obviously, I guess the paraspinal muscles are back. That rhabdo, myelitis, severe rhabdo, and you know, this over-muscle use can lead to compartment syndrome. So it's something to keep in mind on these patients. Because most of the time, if they end up in the ICU, they're usually, and, um, they have prolonged courses and they're sedated. You know, for a few days because they can be significantly agitated. So, with the first duty only for 12 hours, um, and if the first gentleman would have not self-excavated, it's very likely that they would have gone off and this is compartment syndrome and you would have ended up having a fasciotomy with you know, dying uh, necrotic muscle. Yeah, I think these are, are great example cases. I, certainly in the first one, you know, points out how if you restrain people and are fighting at the restraints, you can get compartment syndrome in the forearm. And the other two cases, just laying on your back and being hyperthermic or in throes of hypersympathomimetic or hyperactivity, you can get it in your back. And we've seen ischial compartment syndromes where people sitting in a chair on their butt and passed out. And so there's lots of different compartments despite, you know, I think where you think of just the forearm and the distal leg is sort of the classic ones. Any place there's muscles, you can get a compartment syndrome in under the right circumstances. Again, two out of three of these cases were hyperthermic, they were taken at-risk drugs, which is some pathomimetic bath salts, although hadn't been on the radar previously. I think these are amongst the first case reports of bath salt-induced rhabdo and hyperthermia. Points up to the other points we've talked about before with you have to look for it and when you see, and you have to get CPKs and are always recommending people get CPKs in these agitated, tackled, wrestle-to-the-ground kind of patients, and almost all of them seem to have some degree of, of rhabdo. So to sort of sum it up, I give us a, a bench-to-bedside review on um, Rhabdo is an article is a few years old, but basically covers, I think, a lot of the high points and kind of hit many of those high point criteria for us. Uh, our graduating uh, fellow, Ben, will tell us all about that and some take-home points. Shana will be graduating. <laughs> I'm like, I hope there's not something I'm not aware of going on. Here. Final evaluations about it yet. No. Um, oh. so just kidding. So this is bench to bedside review, rapamyelitis, and overview for clinicians. Um, it's uh, a review article that includes both uh, clinical information and some um, uh, some basic science stuff. So starts with historical aspects. So we go back to biblical times and. 
uh, they did, in the Bible, the Jews suffered a plague during their exodus from Egypt after eating a lot of quail. And the, uh, it's thought that the explanation for this is that um, the quail eat a bunch of hemlock, and that caused um, uh, uh, the, uh, the Jews to develop rhabdo after they ate all the quail that had accumulated hemlock. Um, and then uh, you kind of skip ahead to uh, 1908 when uh, there was a crush syndrome reported in the German military literature. Then in World War II, particularly um, after uh, the Blitz, there were, um, uh, there were reports of pigment and casts found in renal tubules at autopsy of uh, crush victims. Um, but nobody's really sure what the relationship was. Kept reporting it in the wars afterward, um, and uh, the role of myoglobin in the development of rhabdo was first described in the early 1940s in experiments. Um, these, uh, they injected rabbits with myoglobin and reported that the uh, rabbits developed um, uh, acute renal failure. And then, um, since then, there, there's been more... Uh, investigation. So to summarize some of the statistics, um, somewhere between 10 and 50% of patients with rhabdo develop acute renal failure, and that some people have suggested that between 5 and 25% of all cases of acute renal failure is due to rhabdo. Um, mortality rates of people uh, with acute renal failure have rates from 7 to 80%, and rhabdo occurs in an up to 85% of people with traumatic injury. Um, people who have a severe injury who develop rhabdo-induced renal failure have a mortality of about 20%, and it's worse if you have multiple organs that are failing. So um, they describe one uh, study of a uh, post-earthquake um, in Turkey where they looked at victims who uh, uh, were cru or primarily crush injuries. Um, and age was the only independent predictor of outcome uh, in these cases, and 12% um, of all hospitalized patients developed renal failure, and 75% of the people who developed renal failure required dialysis. Um, there are a lot of causes of rhabdo that they list in here. Um, we've talked about a bunch of them. We'll talk about some more while we're uh, going through this article. Um, the major causes of rhabdo in patients in the ED in the urban in the urban population in the U.S. were reported to be cocaine, exercise, and immobilization. And um, So we also uh, talked a little bit about struggling against restraints, and um, uh, and it's also been reported after surgery when it's performed in an improper position or prolonged use of a tourniquet. So a little bit of um, uh, kind of basic science uh, to inform this. So myoglobinemia, myoglobinuria, and a mild elevation of CK can occur after strenuous physical exertion. Um, but when it's extreme, it can cause myelolysis with severe rhabdo. This is, risk factors for this are high temperature and humidity, like we emphasized in some of the prior uh, case reports. Hypokalemia also increases the risk of rhabdo. They theorize that it may be because hypokalemia limits vasodilatation in the muscle microvasculature. So one key thing is people who abuse diet, or athletes who abuse diuretics then are at a higher risk of developing rhabdo during strenuous exercise. Um, so um, 
other aspects of pathophysiology include thermal muscle injury, mechanical muscle injury, and ATP depletion. Um, and they go on to describe rhabdo in high voltage electrical injury and lightning strikes. It's been reported in 10% of patients that survive an electrical shock. It's not really related to the size or location of the burn. And they attribute the myelysis to electrical disruption of the sarcolemmal membranes with a loss of um, barrier function, and you get a massive calcium influx into the, uh, into the cell. Hyperthermia can cause muscle damage, so we talked about this both um, from environmental causes, but also due to malignant hyperthermia and uh, neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Um, and heat stroke um, also can cause hyperthermia leading to rhabdo. Um, hypothermia can also cause rhabdo, uh, and the theory for that is that if you reduce muscle perfusion, you get cold-induced tissue ischemia, and then freezing that causes cellular destruction. So some of the inborn errors of metabolism that uh, result in rhabdo include uh, disorders of carbohydrate me metabolism, so McArdle's disease, which is myophosphorylase deficiency. It's an autosomal recessive condition. And you get selective necrosis of type 2 muscle fibers. These are more dependent on glycolysis to generate ATP and are more sensitive to um, the enzyme defect. Um, and so that you get rhabdo because of ATP depletion in that uh, case. Other diseases include Tarui's disease, which is congenital phosphofructokinase deficiency. Not Tarui's disease. I know. And phos uh, phosphoglycerate mutase deficiency. Also, um, and those are in the glycolytic and glycogenolytic pathways. Other inborn errors are uh, carnitine uh, palmitoyl transferase deficiency, which um, is thought to be the most common hereditary disease that causes rhabdo. And this, uh, and this it occurs um, after prolonged exercise with inadequate nutrition. And I think that's the one that the military thing sort of suggests that if, like, if it's a prolonged course and you don't get better, you're probably going to get like the enzyme checked right. for that one because it's the most common of these oddball genetic diseases. So drug-induced rhabdo, um, so basically anything that can impair the production or use of ATP by skeletal muscle or increases their energy requirements can cause rhabdo. Um, and... Um, the uh, most of the time, the damage is uh, due to drug-induced sarcolemmal injury. That's due to changes in the viscosity of the sarcolemma caused by activation of phospholipase A. This results in increased permeability of the sarcolemma, permits leakage of intracellular contents, and an increase of sodium into the cell. So you get increased intracellular sodium, which activates the sodium-potassium ATPase, and it's a process that requires energy, and you run out of ATP, basically, when you impair cellular transport proteins. Um, that leads to in, uh, accumulation of intracellular calcium and activates neutral proteases that cause further cellular injury. Um, statins uh, uh, are effective for cardiovascular health, and uh, but they do have some side effects, and... Uh, the most serious ones are myositis with rhabdo. So one statin was withdrawn in 2001, statin, um, uh, and that was after there were about 100 rhabdo-related deaths. Um, 
And then uh, the thought is that statins interfere with ATP production by reducing levels of coenzyme Q, uh, which is a component in the electron transport chain. Um, the rhabdo can occur either acutely or many years later, oftentimes after a stressful event. Um, rate of fatal rhabdo is 0.15 deaths per 1 million prescriptions. Um, and the FDA's MedWatch listed 3,339 cases of statin-induced rhabdo over a 12-year time course. There's also a separate chronic myositis syndrome, which is characterized by muscle pain and weakness, um, and that can or sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't have clinically detectable rhabdo. That affects somewhere between 0.1 and 1% of patients. Risk factors are high doses, increasing age, female sex, renal and hepatic insufficiency, diabetes, and therapy with a bunch of other drugs uh, that people who take statins are probably on. So, um, individual statins can have different risk profiles for an individual patient, so sometimes switching from one statin to another will help, but there are some people who just, any statin um, causes problem, problems. Another issue is in solid organ transplant, uh, and particularly cyclosporin um, uh, uh, results in rhabdo. Alcohol directly injures the sarcolemma, increases sodium permeability. They've done biopsies on chronic alcoholics and on animals who are fed ethanol, and they have depletion of intracellular potassium, phos, and mag, and elevated sodium chloride, calcium, and water. So you can get an acute alcohol-induced rhabdo after binge drinking or a sustained period of alcohol abuse. It's usually pain and swelling of muscles, particularly the quads, uh, following your binge drinking episode. And then... <laughs> wow. You know, I was looking at you, Shane. <laughs> My legs aren't hurting today, that's all I'm saying. And then LSD, um, sympathomimetics, and PCP. Uh, so basically anything that induces uh, delirium and agitation and causes a prolonged involuntary muscle contraction, leads to increased ATP demand and eventual exhaustion of the energy stores. And that's uh, what Bill presented with the uh, compartment syndrome cases uh, with bath salts. So, so there are a few different mechanisms. Um, we see cocaine frequently, that's been mentioned. Um, cocaine also has a direct toxic effect on the muscles, not just uh, due to... Uh, uh, um, exertional rhabdo and can cause acute skeletal myofibrillar degeneration. Um, there are a bunch of electrolyte abnormalities including chronic hypokalemia, hypophosphatemia, and hyponatremia um, that are risk factors or are associated with rhabdo as well as rapid correction of hyponatremia. Overuses of diuretic cathartics can lead to uh, total body potassium depletion and cause rhabdo. Um, and potassium depletion-induced rhabdo can occur even in the presence of normal or elevated serum potassium levels. That's because your cells die and lice and release potassium, so you, your serum level is high. So, um, so basically anything that causes electrolyte shifts or, or losses can be associated with rhabdo. Uh, polymyositis and dermatomyositis are autoimmune conditions that uh, can progress to rhabdo. Ingestion of large quantities of licorice. Um, licorice has a mineralocorticoid type agent that results in renal potassium wasting. Hyperosmolar states like hyperglycemic, hyperosmolar, uh, non-ketotic coma um, have been reported to cause uh, rab rhabdo. And thyroid storm and pheo um, have both been associated with rhabdo. 
infections. Uh, this includes uh, bacterial pyomyositis, uh, which is a localized muscle in infection that results in <coughs> destruction of the muscle. Legionella is classically associated with rhabdo. And then septic patients, uh, it can be seen in septic patients without direct muscle infections. Um, and it's thought to be due to toxin-induced or from fever, uh, rigors, and dehydration. Lots of viral syndromes also have been associated with rhabdo. So regardless of why your muscle's injured, it, you get calcium that leaks into the intracellular space, and this causes a pathologic interaction of actin and myosin, activates cellular proteases with muscle destruction, fiber necrosis. Final pathway is increase in free cytosolic ionized calcium. You get a cascade effects that lead to cell permeability and capillary leak. Um, and you also affect the membrane sodium potassium pump and production of ATP. Um, and so regardless of, or when you get a lot of muscle injury, you get large quantities of potassium phosphate, myoglobin, CK, and urate that leak into the circulation. Um, myoglobin in the, re, uh, the glomerulus can precipitate and cause renal tubular obstruction leading to renal damage. So that's what we're going to talk about now, is renal failure and rhabdo. So there are two crucial factors in the development of myoglobinuric uh, acute renal failure, and those are hypovolemia and aciduria. Um, three mechanisms influence the heme protein toxicity, that's renal vasoconstriction with diminished renal circulation, intraluminal cast formation, and direct heme protein-induced cytotoxicity. So if you don't have hypovolemia and aciduria, heme proteins are really not harmful. Um, but when those are present, the heme proteins um, act in multiple ways to, uh, to hurt your kidneys. Um, the uh, heme proteins have a synergistic effect on renal basic uh, constriction through hypovolemia and activation of the cytokine cascade. And there are some theorized mechanisms for that. Um, pigmented casts are characteristic of rhabdo, um, and they result in the interaction of the TAM horsefall protein with myoglobin, uh, and that's made worse. That interaction is made worse at a low pH, um, and so acute renal failure is caused by uh, tubular obstruction, causing increased intraluminal pressure and opposing the glomerular uh, filtration. Other mechanisms that have been proposed include precipitation of the heme protein, providing uh, ended up uh, producing a bunch of toxic-free radicals. You form more casts, or your ability to form casts is determined by the pH, the load of myoglobin, and the flow through the renal tubule. Um, and so myoglobin is a central, kind of the key factor in oxidative uh, injury that's manifested as lipid peroxidation and potentially can be inhibited by an alkaline pH. So clinical effects, we've kind of, we've talked a lot about that already. So muscle pain, weakness, dark urine. Um, the most frequently involved muscle groups are the calves and the lower back. Um, the uh, classic features of swollen and tender muscles uh, are only seen in less than 10% of patients. Um, but some people have excruciating pain. Um, over half of patients may not complain of muscle uh, pain or weakness at all. And some, a lot of, oftentimes you'll see colored urine uh, that can range from pink tinge to dark black. So uh, people oftentimes feel bad when they have rhabdo. 
um, and it can cause a number of uh, abnormalities that we've talked about before. Um, the severe hyperkalemia that occurs secondary to massive muscle breakdown can result in cardiac dysrhythmias and cardiac arrest. There's also hepatic dysfunction in 25% of patients with rhabdo, so it's not just that your AST goes up at, by being released mm -hmm. from bro broken down muscle cells. You also have proteases that are released from injured muscle that cause direct hepatic injury. And um, acute renal failure and DIC are very late complica or, or late complications, usually developing 12 to 72 hours after the initial uh, um, injury. So uh, CK rises in rhabdo within 12 hours of muscle injury, peaks in one to three days, and declines in three to five days. Peak CK level is probably predictive. Um, level of 5,000 or greater is related to renal failure. Half-life of CK is of one and a half days, um, whereas myoglobin um, is pretty short. Uh, the half-life is two to three hours, um, and it's cleared both by renal excretion and by metabolism to build um, so myoglobin oftentimes normalizes within six to, eight, six to eight hours of the injury. So there are other markers that have been used. So carbonic anhydrase 3 is present in skeletal muscles but not in myocardium. So it's much more specific for skeletal muscle injury than CK. Aldolase is in the glycolytic pathway and it's found in skeletal muscles of the liver and the brain. Um, so an increase in CK along with aldolase is suggestive of muscle injury. Um, and then, uh, so your pattern for uh, creatinine, BUN to creatinine ratio um, you, uh, is often narrowed in, uh, um, in rhabdo. Um, so you get a greater elevation of your creatinine than your BUN and rhabdo induced renal failure as compared to um, hypoglobin or just hypoglobinemic dehydration. So um, you get electrolyte abnormalities, so you should be checking those. And um, you can also see myoglobin in uh, urine. Um, and five times the normal is kind of the classic definition of rhabdo uh, for CK. Clotting studies, they say clotting studies are also useful um, because of DIC. Um, and they suggest that you can use a urine dipstick as a quick screen, although it's not very, no, not as sensitive as using a CK. Um, so management, um, overall, aggressive fluid hydration should definitely be part of your management and the mainstay of your management. People have also tried to use um, forced diuresis Manitol has been used, um, and it's been suggested to work in a couple different ways, both because of the diuresis and because it acts as a free radical scavenger. Um, it also reduces blood viscosity and is a renal uh, vasodilator. Um, and then alkalinization with bicarb uh, has been suggested, um, and uh, that kidneys will, uh, it helps them clear a large acid load. Um, and uh, that sometimes patients who aren't able to adequately alkalinize their urine without uh, uh, getting bicarb. However, um, both mannitol and bicarb have not been uh, shown to be effective uh, or shown to be significantly helpful um, in a, a few retrospective studies. Um, and don't seem to, seem to have much benefit over aggressive volume uh, uh, replacement with saline alone. 
There's also some research in free radical scavengers and antioxidants, although it's all very preliminary. Finally, uh, some people will develop renal failure um, with uh, acidosis and hyperkalemia and will require dialysis. Sometimes you need daily dialysis or uh, a continuous hemofiltration. Um, and uh, uh, peritoneal dialysis is not adequate to remove the large solute loads and rhabdo-induced acute renal failure, but can be a temporizing measure. Um, people have tried doing uh, plasma exchange to remove myoglobin, which hasn't really been uh, helpful. Finally, there is a um, uh, patients sometimes develop hypercalcemia during the recovery phase, and that's in 20 to 30 percent of patients. And so you should avoid adding calcium during the renal failure phase unless somebody has significant or uh, has symptomatic hypocalcemia or severe hyperkalemia. Um, and so to summarize, it's life-threatening, suspected anytime you can get some damage from skeletal muscle, um, no signs and symptoms, muscle pain, muscle tenderness, and dark urine, check a uh, CK and a urine. Um, and aggressive hydration is kind of uh, is the most important thing in, uh, uh, in attempting to prevent uh, uh, renal failure. All right, yeah, good summary of all the myriad of causes that cause rhabdo besides heat. A lot of drugs are out there, a lot of odd things like uh, genetic diseases, viral illnesses. They left out, of course, my favorite uh, obscure question, eating buffalo fish. Yeah. But uh, uh, that being said, overall, a well-written article. Um, treatment, of course, has been very controversial, depending if you ask surgeons or internists or renal failure. A lot of them will, uh, nephrologists will say you don't need the bicarb. Uh, they created at least a good theoretical reason why alkalinization of the urine helps, where it's decreased the amount of the protein interaction between the fam partial proteins and myoglobin and precipitates in the urine. And although those old studies from the early 90s basically showed no difference, they certainly didn't show that alkalization had any downside. It's certainly not a very expensive therapy. Our bias, I think, is at high levels CK or on rising CKs is to add uh, bicarb in addition to their aggressive hydration, which clearly everyone agrees is the main issue involved, is get them really well hydrated kidneys from shutting down. So as summertime's on the way, uh, stay well hydrated out there, uh, avoid uh, overexertion and uh, avoid, CrossFit. Uh, avoid, avoid a bunch of drugs as well. And, uh, don't do we'll, that. Don't, don't do, do CrossFit. That's right. And we'll <laughs> see you all back here in about a month. So have a, a good summer, everyone.